I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we begin our annual celebration of the spooky season. And to kick off the Halloween festivities, we've got a conversation with one of the premier Scream Queens of the 1980s and 1990s, Brink Stevens, whose credits include such cult classics as Slumber Party Massacre, Nightmare Sisters, Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bolorama, Teenage Exorcist, Bad Girls from Mars, Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, Grandmother's House, Haunting Fair, and countless others. Alongside Linnea Quigley and Michelle Bauer, Brink Stevens was one of the most recognizable Scream Queens of the VHS boom in the 1980s. In this conversation, we'll be discussing her long career, which includes appearances in over 200 movies, as well as her latest upcoming feature, which she not only acts in, but also directs. Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball Bullarama 2, the official sequel to the 1980s cult classic that's set for release on Full Moon Features' streaming channel in November. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with the Scream Queen, Brink Stevens. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to have on, Brink Stevens, one of my favorite Scream Queens. She's been in 
wow, a massive amount of movies over the years, including Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bullarama, which she's also directing the sequel to. Uh, she's also been in movies like Haunting Fair and uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. I mean, there's so many titles you've been in. I just got That's done cool. watching Teenage Exorcist and then um, oh. Fred Olin Ray's Bad Girls from Mars. So yep. I've seen so many of your movies and it's great to have you on. So how are you doing, Brink? Thank you. Thank you. Yes, those are all cult classics, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into Sorority Babes, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, your background, because I know you started out in marine biology, right? How did you transition to modeling and then film? Well, um, let's see. I went to San Diego State University and I double majored in biology and psychology. And my goal was to work with animals, so specifically marine mammals. So uh, then I got into Scripps Institute of Oceanography and I was in the PhD program working with seals, dolphins, and sea otters. And things kind of went sideways. Um, I, I, got, I left school with a master's degree. It just wasn't working out. And I moved to Los Angeles to marry my college sweetheart, Dave Stevens, the artist who did The Rocketeer. Uh, meanwhile, I had um, done some modeling while I was in college and I had a portfolio of modeling pictures. And uh, I had made an appointment at a modeling agency and they forgot about the appointment and they had gone for the day. So I'm trudging down this long hallway in this office building with my portfolio and there was an open door. So I kind of stopped and peeked in the door because there were movie posters all over the walls. And uh, I didn't know where I was or what it was, but there was this guy sitting behind a desk watching me and he said, you come in here, show me what you got. I said, I don't know, I'm in the wrong place. But he looked at my modeling portfolio and he said, uh, you want to be in a movie tomorrow? And I'm like, uh, sure. So it turned out to be an extra in all the marbles. And that started a career. That's, that's of being the female in wrestling movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was $40 a day in lunch. So I thought, huh, well, until I can find a science job, I can do extra roles. So I was in quite a few extra parts. Uh, people called me don't blink brink because you, if you blinked, you'd miss me. But I got a lot of work out of that. And then in 1981, 82, right shortly after I'd come to L.A., I saw an ad in Dramalogue for Slumber Party Massacre. So that was my first speaking role. And it was the first time that I ran from a driller killer and died horribly and screamed and all of that. So that kind of set the tone for the rest of my career for the next 40 years. So when it comes to the rise of the scream queens, I, I think of a lot of different actresses, but the big three are you, Linnea Quigley and uh, Michelle Barr. So how did, how did that sort of scream queen era really get kickstarted? Was it movies like Sorority Babes and, and Nightmare Sisters or what sort of led to that? Was it uh, just a confluence of the actresses like yourself and the directors like David Ducato and, and Jim Wynorski and Fred Olin Ray or how did that all start? Hmm. Well, the 80s, the first movies that we were doing, like Slumber Party Massacre and Slave Girls, were on film. But then the video revolution happened in the mid 80s. And suddenly all the people you named, Roger Corman's studio and um, Full Moon called Empire at the time, were turning out these movies. It was like factories. And the primary target audience was college age males. So you wanted pretty girls, you wanted shower scenes, you wanted monsters. And, uh, you know, we were, Michelle Linnea and I always ran into each other on auditions. 
And we did a few shower scenes together, like in The Man Who Wasn't There and Fatal Games. So eventually uh, we got to know each other and we would refer each other to movies. So I got them into a few things. They got me involved. I met Fred Olin Ray. And uh, we just started doing a lot of things together. We were kind of the nightmare sisters. We were in sorority babes. And a number of later Dave Dakota movies like Cougar Cult and Three Screen Queens. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I know they were movies that were aimed towards college age men and they have, you know, uh, nudity and whatnot. But they're also, they're, they're films that are very different from a lot of the other 80s horror movies. Like, a, you know, a, a movie like Sorority Babes or Nightmare Sisters, you know, it may have nudity and whatnot, but it's not the same as like a Friday the 13th movie. Where I feel like a Friday the 13th movie is kind of like, you can get really mean-spirited and kind of gory. There's there's like a lightheartedness and a sort of comedic touch uh, to the movies you did with, especially with Dave Dakotu, but also Fred and uh, Jim Wynorski. What do you think about the comedic element of those films? Do you think that's why they've had such a, a cult classic status? I think so. Um, Sorority Babes in the Slime Bowl Bullerama was just really good fun. You know, there was beautiful girls in it, some fun guys. Um, it was just so 80s. And I love the horror comedies. I'm squeamish about gore, like the Saw movies and things. I really rather not watch that. So I think a lot of people enjoyed the 80s horror comedies and it kind of made a comeback. There's still an 80s revival. Like I recently had a showing of Slumber Party Massacre, which is much a comedy, although it is very funny. There's some really great lines in it. Plus, it was written by a woman, directed by a woman, and kind of known as the first feminist slasher film. And some of the things in it were just really humorous. I don't know that they intended it to be, but like eating cold pizza off the dead guy's body, you know, things like that. Um, and the, the pizza boy, by the way, was Aaron Lipstadt, who was our first AD, I believe. And he went on to direct some episodes of Supernatural up in Portland. So he had a good career after that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because um, I, I do think a lot of the movies you've been in have that sort of, like I said, lighthearted tone. Uh, but then there's also the movies where uh, you play things pretty straight, um, like Grandmother's House. And also I just watched um, Haunting Fear, which is it, it's played pretty mm. straight throughout. So what's the difference between doing like a, a straight horror movie and the more comedic sort of uh, horror movies? I loved both of those movies, and they came out about the same time, around 1991. Uh, Haunting Fear, I had done a number of movies for Fred Olin Ray already, like Spirits, Bad Girls from Mars, um, Warlords. So he handed me a script, and he said, uh, read it and tell me what you think of the script. So I read the script, and I said, I liked it. <laughs> he says, no, 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 uh, I want you in it as an actor. So uh, I thought he wanted me for the sexy secretary, but he said, no, no, I want you to play Vicky, the lead role. And I had never had a part that big. I'm pretty much in every scene. I'm through in the entire movie. And uh, it was one of the first films so far where I didn't die in the end. So many times I did. So. Um, I thought that was just pretty amazing. And every day I would get a little crazier because my husband, Jay Richardson, is kind of gaslighting me and making me think I'm going crazy. And we didn't shoot it in order. So every day on set, I would have to say, well, how crazy am I today? 
and, uh, you know, kind of keep track of that as I slowly descend into madness. And then when I finally get full-blown crazy Vicky, uh, it was really fun to see the makeup that uh, John Vulich, Optic Nerve, had done on me because I just look in the mirror and go, whoa, <laughs> pretty scary. How long, how long does the makeup take? Um, that makeup wasn't too bad. They had to make me really pale and put a lot of blood on me and stuff. Um, one of the hardest makeups they did was Witch House 3, where... Um, you see my chest and they did this, it looked like airbrushing to show my ribs and stuff, but it wasn't, it was just a practical effect. Um, and my face and contact lenses and these long talon fingernails, they had to do my hands that took quite a long time. And, uh, it was a really difficult role because they had this huge dress that had petticoats and things and a bodice and lace up. And, and then I had these long talons. And so I couldn't dress myself. So I needed, you know, it's just like in the Victorian age where you had to have people dressing you. Wow. Yeah, it's it's great that you mentioned Jay Richardson because I like the chemistry you have with him, uh, not just in Haunting Fair, but also um, Teenage Exorcist. How do you sort of find the chemistry uh, when you're working with an actor? Jay was in a lot of Fred Olin Ray's movies. And he was so affable at the time. Everybody loved working with him. And I actually wrote the script for Teenage Exorcist. And I wrote the part for Jay and pretty much for everybody. I, I knew who I wanted in that film. Uh, Jay is still has a great career. He had done a lot of uh, TV commercials and things at, as, after the Fred Olin Ray days. And uh, now he does so many movies, you know, he kind of looks grandfatherly with a gray beard and stuff, but he works all the time. Did you, so, so you wrote uh, Teenage Exorcist. How did that come about? Because I was watching it and it's a very, uh, it's a very funny movie, especially the interplay you have, uh, not just with Jay, but with uh, the legendary Eddie Deason, who, uh, you know, I met Eddie Deason a few years back and he is not that far off from, you know, the characters he plays. He's just as, uh, nerdy in a in a good way as um as he is in the movies you're so right eddie is eddie you know what you see is what you get uh the way teenage exorcist came about uh we have in la here the afm american film art and it's not uncommon for someone to work up a flyer for a movie and then pitch it and try to raise the financing to shoot the movie at the AFM by getting distribution and stuff. So Fred Ray had done a flyer for it and his then wife, Don Wildsmith, was on the cover. And he had asked me if I wanted to be in it, if and when they ever made the movie, uh, so he could put my name on the flyer. So a little time went by and apparently he was not able to pre-sell the film. And I said, are we ever going to shoot that? And he said, well, I'll be honest with you. I don't even really have a script. It was just a concept. And I said, well, can I write the script? Because I just wanted the role, you know, but um, I had already written and sold maybe six screenplays at that time. So he let me write the script. And originally the Teenage Exorcist was a high school student, a little blonde girl named Buffy. And this was before Buffy the Vampire Slayer came out. It was just a weird coincidence. So Fred had the script in a stack. Time went by and he never really made it. And uh, Grant Austin Waldman was another producer, filmmaker at the same time in Los Angeles. So he had planned to start a movie and then something fell through. He lost his actress, um, someone had a schedule, scheduling conflict. For some reason, he couldn't shoot the movie he had planned to shoot, but he had rented all this equipment and stuff like that. 
So Grant called Fred and said, do you have any simple scripts that I could start shooting on Monday that don't require a lot of actors and stuff? And uh, Fred sent over six screenplays, one of which was Teenage Exorcist. And Grant said, that's the one I want to shoot next week. So he said, but, you know, I just I can't see Brink in that role. And Fred is like, well, Grant, you know, she wrote the script and she wrote that part for herself. So I think that she can play it. So we very hurriedly hired Michael Berryman and Jay Richardson, Elena Sahagan, a bunch of people and, and Eddie Deason. And we shot it. And um, for some reason, Grant couldn't find a blonde 18 year old high school girl in the amount of time we had, which was like three days. So he ended up hiring his good friend, Eddie Deason to play the teenage exorcist. And even back then, Eddie was not a teenager. So, but I think he did a wonderful job. And throughout lunch, I would be sitting there rewriting the script to fit Eddie because we had lines that the girl would say like, oh gosh, look at the time, mom's expecting me home. So it might've been funny to leave it, but we had to rewrite it for Eddie. And then later, um, just before COVID, Grant Austin Waldman had kind of retired to Florida, but he still had that desire to make movies. So he um, had a partial script. It was like 52 pages called Tears of a Clown a killer a clown movie, but kind of comedy. And uh, he wanted me to write it as a full length script. And he said, write a part for yourself and for Eddie Deason. So um, I did. And yeah, we were going to shoot it like in early 2020 and then COVID hit. But I had gone to Cocoa Beach, Florida, uh, near where Grant is living and had done several location scouting trips before I finished the, writing the script. And then my cameraman, Chuck Serino and I, went there together to look at, you know, different camera angles and stuff. And I met with the investors, with one of the actors. It was going to be wonderful. And then COVID derailed it. And uh, we still haven't picked up on that again. We needed a pair of twin girls that had to be about 10 or 11. And we had found them, but now they'd be teenagers and it just doesn't quite fit. So we probably have to recast. Also, Eddie Deason has had some problems lately. Um, he was always a very sensitive person and uh, he suffered from depression. So he had a nervous breakdown, left Los Angeles, moved back to Baltimore with his family, came back to L.A., but then he's been having some problems recently, too. So I'm not even sure Eddie can participate in it. And he's really the key to the whole thing. You know, he's he's just the heart of the movie. So I'm I'm wondering now if this movie will ever happen. So. It's kind of interesting to me, uh, with regards to all these films that you've worked on, what's what's it like making these sort of, I mean, they're lower budget movies uh, done on like very tight schedules. Uh, how long is like a, a shoot for, say, you know, a movie like Sorority Babes or Sorority Babes 2 or like the type of movies you've worked on? The shortest time I ever had was on Nightmare Sisters. And we actually shot that movie in four days. But wow. if, if you watch it, you'll notice that the camera doesn't move. You know, they set the camera up on the tripod and they run it for 12 minutes. And Linnea, Michelle and I knew our lines so well that we always got it in one take. And, uh, you know, there's not like a 
a main shot, a medium shot, close-ups. It just, it's what it is. It's a static camera a lot of the time. So we managed to do that in four days. And then recently I uh, directed Sorority Babes 2 back in Cleveland, Ohio. And we had six principal shooting days with the entire group of actors. And then we had another day for pickups and we had another day where uh, Michelle and I shot green screen. We play ghosts in the movie because we both died in the first film. Wow. So what's it like uh, going from acting to directing? Because I know you have Sorority Babes too, and I also know that you have um, a, a segment in the upcoming Terror Tunes uh, from yeah. the mind of Joe Castro, who I think did the special effects for Teenage Exorcist. Yes, he did. Um, Joe and I go way back. He was 16 years old and I was the mascot, Evola, for Monsterland magazine. And Joe was a high school kid living in Texas and Monsterland ran a contest um, and Joe won. So they flew him out to Los Angeles to meet Evola and took him around to different um, special effects studios like John Beekler. And Joe said, as soon as I graduate, I'm moving to Los Angeles to be a special effects artist. So he did and uh, worked on a number of films for Fred Olin Ray and so on. And then Joe became a director and a producer. And I did many movies for him as an actor. So I was in like Terror Tunes 2, Terror Tunes 3. And when it came time to plan Terror Tunes 4, he said, I'm accepting um, ideas from writers because it's usually three 30 minute vignettes with a wraparound. So I wrote a paragraph uh, for a 30 minute shoot called Personal Demons. And uh, Joe said, I really like it. Give me a one page synopsis. So I expanded my paragraph into a whole page. And then he said, I love this. I want you to write me 30 pages of the entire script. So I did. And I didn't hear back from him right away. I knew he was reading it. And then he called me up and he said, um, we need to talk. Come over here. And I thought, "Uh oh, what did I do? So when I got over to talk to Joe in person, he said, um, I like this so much that I want you to direct it so that it stays true to your vision. And I said, well, you know, I wrote the lead character for myself and I'm in the whole movie. And he said, that's okay. You can act and direct at the same time. So we shot that several years ago and the entire movie is against a green screen, which seemed like a good idea at the time, but so much of what took forever was you know, doing the green screen stuff. And on my first day of shooting, I commandeered Debbie Rashan and Lynette Quigley, two of my very best friends, um, to be actors for me on my first day of directing because I knew that it would be comfortable with them. And they did a wonderful job. And in fact, both of the roles that they played, a doctor and a, an agent, were written for men. But when I knew I could get them, uh, I'm like, hey, OK, the girls are in. So that's coming out. Finally, Territoons 4 will be available on DVD. And um, based on that, it ended up being a 36 minute short. Uh, Charlie Band called me up and he said, hey, I'm doing a, a sequel to Sorority Babes. And I thought, well, why are you telling me this? I died in the first movie. And he says, no, I want you to direct it. And it turns out Full Moon is really into promoting females as directors, as writers, and so on. So I said, okay. And I thought maybe Dave Dakota would help me and kind of be there as a mentor. But he says, no, no, I'm way too busy. You can, you'll do fine. 
So I had a great support team. Billy Butler was my producer, and he's also a director. Greg Leitner did special effects. He was on Face Off, and he's also been a director. So I was surrounded with wonderful, talented people who had my back. And by the third day, I was really in my groove and, and barking orders with the best of them. So how does, how does being an actress, does it give you any insights into directing or even, I, I know you do a lot of writing as well, um, not just Teenage Exorcist, but I believe you even wrote a serial at one point in the 80s for um, Weird Tills magazine. So how does your acting play into your writing and, and directing? Is there any sort of crossover? Does your acting inform your writing and directing style? I knew when I took on the director role that I would have certain gaps in my knowledge. And that became apparent when, for example, the cameraman turned to me and said, do you want to use a 60 or an 85 for this next shot? And I had no idea what he was talking about. I, I knew he meant a lens and I knew it probably had something to do with focal length. So I went, hmm, well, let's go with whatever one you think works best. And I probably gave myself away, you know, imposter syndrome. But um, where I really excelled was working with the actors. And some of them were young. One guy, it was his very first movie job. And uh, I just love working with the actors, blocking them, helping them with their performance. You know, and they would come to me if they didn't like a line or if they didn't like certain action. Uh, and I thought I was really good at directing them. We had a love scene and the boy had never done a love scene before, but the girl had. So I took her aside and I said, here's what I'm looking for. So you're going to have to lead him. And she kind of winked at me and said, I can do that. So things like that. And, and like I said, does the does your acting experience I had someone specifically want me to ask you this. Does your act, acting experience influence uh, your writing endeavors at all? Yeah, when I wrote Tears of a Clown, uh, I wrote it in a very simple way, which was like a shot list. So it would make it easy for the director. And then Grant asked me if I wanted to direct it. Uh, so I was supposed to do that and then be in it. Um, but yeah, I, I try to say all the lines out loud to make sure. And it was harder on Sorority Babes too, because they did not write the script. And whoever the author is, they have a certain vision in mind. And as a director, you have to kind of stay true to their vision. But sometimes, like for example, there's a scene where the three boys are spying on the sorority girls. And the script says they're hiding in the bushes outside the sorority house window. Well, there were no bushes. So I had to come up with something. So I show the boys sneaking across the lawn and hiding behind trees and poking their heads out, you know, things like that, where it was really fun to have that kind of freedom to tweak the script a little bit, but to also stay true to what the writer had put down on paper. With regards to the original uh, Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bullarama, it's an interesting film because I think you know, it's this movie for people that haven't seen it. It's a movie about, uh, you know, a demonic imp uh, that sort of grants wishes and makes all the wishes go wrong. And uh, you're you're menaced by uh, this this imp along with Linnea Quigley and um, a number of the other actors in the movie. So what's interesting is I think it starts out as a movie that, you know, was popular as a VHS rental, uh, but it's sort of had this staying power over the years uh, because it goes from being a VHS rental to appearing on USA Up All Night uh, with Rhonda Shear. Um, I think Joe Bob Briggs has hosted it on Shudder uh, now in recent years. And now people can watch it on, on places like Tubi or, 
or full moon features. So uh, what do you think about the staying power of the original sorority babes? Because it's sort of constantly been reinvented in a way, you, you know, it goes from VHS to, you know, uh, the, the Ronda share hosted shows. Why do you think it has such staying power with people? Yeah, now it's got a sequel. Um, I think of all the movies I did, and it's well over 200, that the two that really became cult classics were um, Slumber Party Massacre and Sorority Babes. And really, Sorority Babes is a perfect little movie because it's got the three of us girls in it, and each of us has a different personality, but we're all you know, pretty and charming. The boys were wonderful. They all went on to have great careers in films directed by Dave Dakota, who at the time, I believe was only 24 years old. And yet on a low budget with a young director, they did incredible things. Like they light the sky on fire and they flip a car and stuff like that. So it didn't look low budget. It really, you know, had high, high good production values on it. And it was just so cute. Um, so I'm hoping in Sorority Babes too that we've recaptured some of that magic. And it takes place in the present day. They talk about events 30 years ago when Michelle and I died in this quest at the bowling alley. Um, but it does have an 80s tone to it. The color scheme is very peach and aqua. There's gonna be 80s type music. Um, the title credit sequence, we shot an aerobics workout where the girls are all in the sweatbands, you know, kind of the Olivia Newton-John workout sort of thing. Um, and it's just really cute. And it's got the bowling alley and the kids and the imp. Um, the imp had long since fallen to pieces, but um, they had to build a new one only from photos and from watching the movie and doing still frames. And Greg Leitner did an incredible job replicating the imp so it looks almost identical to the original one what's the what's the basic maybe a uh, plot outline you you could give my listeners of sorority babes in the slimeball bullorama too well it's basically just like the first movie <laughs> but 30 years later it's the same sorority and there's new recruits uh there's a whipped cream fight there's a shower scene the boys are spying on them the um, three girls and the three guys get sent to the bowling alley to steal a trophy and they knock it over and the imp comes out of it. It's a different imp. Um, it's like son of imp. And then Michelle Bauer and I come back as ghosts and sort of uh, toward the end, we save the day. We kind of convey to the kids how to get the imp back in the trophy and uh, Kelly Maroney stepped in to play Linnea's role. Linnea had broken her kneecap like the week before production and um, couldn't walk or travel. So Kelly Maroney was quickly hired to play Linnea's sister. So Linnea played a character called Spider and Kelly is Snake. And she talks about events that happened 30 years ago and uh, there, there will be some flashbacks from the first movie, some footage showing Linnea in action. So she is in the movie, although she does not reprise, reprise her role of Spider. What was, um, were there any like big challenges that you came across uh, when directing uh, Sorority Babes 2? Or was it ma mainly just sort of a, a sort of fun shoot? It was a fun shoot. And we really only had two locations. We had the sorority house 
and the bowling alley. And the sorority house is a house that Charlie Band had bought for production in Cleveland, Ohio. It's largely uninhabited. So they've shot so many movies there and they just keep repainting the walls different colors and when need be putting up false walls to make the rooms look different. So it was really nice, you know, just having the two locations. Also, the bowling alley closed for us during the day in San Diego back in 87 when we shot the first movie. We had to start work at 9 p.m. when the bowling alley closed and shoot till 9 a.m. But that was 30 years ago and it was easier then. I am so thankful that we did not have to shoot all night. We were able to shoot in the bowling alley during the day. The hardest part of this production was that six days is just not enough. And the intention was to shoot 10 hour days. And I don't think we had a single 10 hour day. They were never less than 12, sometimes 14. The last day we went 16 hours. And it's really difficult at two o'clock in the morning to get a good performance out of your actors. And <laughs> there were times when I would just be spacing out and somebody would have to jab me in the ribs and I'd go, oh, uh, action. <laughs> I what, how I do you power um, through those long days? Like oh, what's, what's your secret? It's so hard. Um, Fred Allen Ray told me that uh, Roger Corman always said, sit down as much as you possibly can. And I understand now why. And I did have a director chair in Video Village that I could sit in and watch the monitor. But I liked being all over the place. And I was on my feet for you know 16 hours at a time. So uh, my legs and lower back and feet just hurt so bad. It was unimaginable. I'd never been in pain like that before. So with, with regards to the original Sorority Babes, one of the questions uh, that I wanted to ask you is, and I, I ask this of a lot of the actresses I've had on, like Linnea Quigley, um, but, you know, in doing some of the scenes, especially scenes that require nudity, uh, did were you able to just become comfortable with doing those type of scenes or like, like, because I, I think nudity requires a certain level of, of vulnerability when you do those scenes. So was that difficult doing that at first? Or did you sort of just, were you always sort of um, open to it? Like, how did you uh, deal with nude scenes back in, in the 80s and 90s? Hmm. Well, in the 70s, when I lived in San Diego, there's a nude beach called Black's Beach. And I would occasionally go there with my next door neighbors, this gay couple. And I really enjoyed being naked. So it was never an issue for me. You know, people would have to say, put your clothes on, Brick. <laughs> and um, Michelle Bauer was very comfortable with it. And I suppose Linnea was too. And it was required in the 80s. Um, be, you know, like I said, it being a target audience was college age males. Everybody had to show their bosoms, you know, and, and be naked. So we just got used to doing that. And then consequently, there were a lot of shower scenes and uh, occasional love scenes. But I tried not to do the love scenes. I wasn't really into that. On the uh, Sorority Babes 2, there was one love scene and two shower scenes for the kids. And... Billy Butler, who normally directs Full Moon's movies, said, you know, I just really don't want to direct three women in a shower scene. So Brink, you do it. So uh, that was one of the reasons I think that I was hired as a director was so that I could work with the girls. And they were uh, quite nervous about it. I was really surprised because back in the 80s, everybody did nudity that where it was required in the low budget movies. But now, oh, God, you know, it was like they would they were calling me up saying, well, 
how much are you going to see? Where's the camera going to be? How far away is it? How close to my breasts are you going to be? You know, things like that. And I'm like, you know what? You either agree to do nudity or you don't. I don't know where the camera's going to be. I haven't seen the room yet. So let's just do this. So it was a little difficult trying to convince them. But um, I thought the shower scenes went well. There's two in this movie. And I thought the love scene went well. Um, and it, it's not uh, purient. You know, it's just very romantic and elegant and like a montage. So that's what people want to see. You know, they want to see the babes. And even now today, all 30 years after the first one, you know, nobody's going to shut it off if there's naked women on the screen. Yeah. And I, I think what's uh, so fascinating about movies like sorority babes, I, I mean, you know, there is nudity and, and I guess there's a lot of it at times in movies like Sorority Babes or Nightmare Sisters, but it's done in such a playful way that I, I think people are almost more accepting of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And plus we had all those magazines back in the 80s, like Screen Queens Illustrated and um, Femme Fatale. And there was a lot of scantily clad stuff in that too, if not full on nudity. So we were pretty used to it. I mean, you know, face it, the very first issue of Femme Fatale in 1991 or 92, I'm completely naked on the cover. I'm just holding my hands over my, my breasts and privates. And I'm like, Bill, Bill George, the editor, how can you put this on the cover? You'll never be able to sell this at newsstands. And yet it proved to be very popular. So, and I think that that really helped the three of us, me and Linnea and Michelle, to reach the fans. Um, they loved us and we weren't wearing masks like Freddie and Jason, you know, um, and Michael Myers. We were just ourselves. And there hadn't been since, oh, you know, Peter Cushing and so on, that era Christopher Lee. So suddenly you've got these girls that are pretty, they do horror movies and they do conventions and they're in the magazines. So it made us very accessible to fans. And I'm sure that it contributed a great deal to our popularity in that the three of us are still working. We're still acting. I've done eight movies so far this year and uh, I'm always in demand. So I just love that we have such career longevity. I was going to ask too, I, I know you said the movies um, back then were sort of um, geared towards like that, that uh, college age male demographic, but I've also seen interviews you guys did back then where you would talk about, you know, how, uh, you know, there, there's even girls that, that seem to have enjoyed these movies. Um, have you, have you met like women that are into them or? Yeah. Um, usually at a convention, especially back in the, 80s or 90s, a guy would come up to the table and his girlfriend would be visibly trying to drag him away from us. So I was always thrilled when we'd go to a convention and the girls would come up and say, oh, I love you. You, you were my role model, you know, sign my book and things like that. So I always love it when women appreciate what we're doing and don't feel threatened by us. Who, who um, what directors that you've worked with do you think have had the most influence on you? Um, in terms of, you know, now that you're directing movies, uh, were there any that you specifically learned from? I'm assuming, uh, you know, someone like David Takato is like a font of knowledge in a lot of ways about filmmaking. Yes, I did learn a great deal from him. And he was really fast. You know, he had his lights on wheels so he could just roll the lights 
and uh, the camera was on wheels and, you know, he could shoot really fast and yet good. So I always appreciated that about him. Fred was an excellent technical director. Um, you didn't get so much a lot of uh, input as an actor, but he was so proficient technically. He could really command a set and produce everything himself. Uh, I also worked for some really big name directors like Rob Reiner on Spinal Tap and um, Brian De Palma on Body Double. He was an interesting director. I loved his early movies, especially Phantom of the Paradise. So when I had a chance to audition for Body Double, uh, I was so excited to meet him. And he was really a personable guy. But as a director, it's very internalized. It's all inside his head. And so he would walk around and examine everything. And he's, you know, hovering all around, hovering around him is the whole cast crew. And they're waiting for him to say something. And after a long period of silence, he'd finally say, okay, this is what we're going to do. You over there, you there, you there, you there. And it'd be the sudden burst of activity to carry out his, his orders. So it was like that. He was kind of a, a genius. And when he hired me, um, I had had an, an audition in his Airstream trailer on a studio lot. And I immediately started out and I said, I love Phantom of the Paradise. And uh, so we talked about a lot of things. And he said, I really like you. I don't know what I can do with you, though. But tell you what, show up on Monday and I'll figure out something for you to do. So I showed up on Monday, first day of shooting body double. And uh, I sat in a chair all day and he'd walk by and I'd raise my eyebrows and he'd just shake his head. No, nothing yet. So at the end of the day, I was so disappointed and he saw me and he said, come back on Tuesday. So Tuesday I came back. It was the same thing. I sat in a chair all day. I'd walk, he'd walk by, he'd go, mm, sorry, nothing for you today. Come back on Wednesday. So I came back on Wednesday. First thing in the morning, he says, I've got something for you to do. And I was so excited. And then a half hour later, one of the uh, grips has a heart attack and the ambulance comes and they close the set down for the day. So it's just not working out for me. But finally, on Thursday and Friday, I, I did do stuff. Um, I'm in the movie within the movie, the X-rated film. I'm in a makeup chair. I'm in the Frankie Goes to Hollywood music video. I got to work with Melanie Griffith and Craig Lawson. And it was a wonderful experience. I was just so happy to interact with him and to spend a week with him. I got to ask too, uh, because I've recently had him on the show and I'm wondering what he's like to work with because he comes off as quite a character. What is Jim Wynorski like to work with? Because I loved your, I loved your little cameo in a uh, Transylvania twist. So. Oh yeah. Thank you. Um, yes. I was doing Evola for Monsterland magazine and that was my own T-bird. And uh, uh, I had a, um, a bucket kind of between my legs so that when I throw up the holy water, which was, you know, like food coloring and glycerin, caro syrup, um, you know, I can throw it up right into this bucket and not get it on my tuck and roll upholstery. I also worked with Jim on uh, Screen Queen Hot Tub Party, which was really fun. It's just a complete spoof on the genre where I talk about how to take the perfect movie shower and all the girls are in a hot tub and things like that. Fred also worked on that as well. Um, other than that, I haven't done a lot with Jim but uh, his movies are really fun, you know, and I can't wait to see his new one, Bigfoot or Bust. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I'm, I've been wanting to see that myself. I think it came out back in July. Um, you know, it's interesting what you said, though, uh, about the, the sort of 
three Scream Queens, you, Michelle, and, and Linnea, um, and sort of comparing that to maybe like uh, the, the horror stars of yesteryear, like um, Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee, because I, one thing I've noticed is that I, I think all three of you uh, all brought a different type of personality to the table. You know, Linnea Quigley to me was always like the punk rock girl, right? Uh, yeah. Michelle brought her own sort of vibe at times, uh, sort of flirtatious, but also maybe I've seen her in a few movies where she plays like a biker girl. And you you sort of are like the, uh, I think in a lot of movies she come off as the the girl next door that, you know, you could bring home to mom, you know, as a girlfriend. Uh, you, you all have like very distinct personalities in the movies you're in. Do you think that led to a lot of your longevity, the three of you have? Yes, and there's such a chemistry between the three of us. And all these years later, we're still really close friends where um, Linnea lives about two hours outside of L.A. And uh, twice this year, Michelle and I have made the expedition to go and visit her. And we kind of just have lunch with her and drive two hours back. But we make an effort to stay in touch with her. And uh, Michelle and I see each other frequently in Los Angeles for lunch. And we go to screenings that we're invited to together. So it's just been, um, they're just wonderful girls. And I love the fact that they're not competitive or jealous with each other and that we've been able to stay friends all these years in spite of Linnea having lived in Florida for quite a long time. You know, prior to that, we used to hang out a lot, go clothing shopping and stuff. So we didn't see Linnea for quite some time, but now we're trying to do more conventions together, kind of a Nightmare Sisters reunion. So recently at the end of June, uh, I had set up a, a comic book store tour in Texas. And I got uh, everybody involved in that. And then we did a, a Hollywood collector show in Los Angeles and uh, the three of us. And I think that the three will be at uh, Chiller Theater in April of 2023. So hopefully that will work out. Do you think um, th there's truth to what I was sort of trying to get at there, which is, I, I think like you each brought sort of sex appeal uh, to these, a lot of the movies you were in, but I, I think there's more to it than that. I think, uh, you know, you guys have been around a long time and I think people just connect uh, just to the characters you play, even beyond the sexy aspect, the cute aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Linnea always had that kind of punk rock vibe and she does play guitar in a band, um, you know, and she loves playing a little tough chick. And Michelle is um, funny, sexy. She's a great comedian. And yet she's got that just really out there sex appeal. And the I, I wanted to say, too, I think all three of you are, are great uh, with comic timing. You're great comic actresses. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I don't get to do a lot of comedies, but my favorite series was the Caesar and Otto. The, uh, my brother loves the Caesar and Otto movies. Oh, my yeah, God. I do, too. Um, and I, I've been in three of them and they're so funny. Um, I just love doing comedy. So before we close out, I, I want to get back to sorority babes too, but uh, are there any roles that you're particularly fond of that you've done over the years? Well, you mentioned Haunting Fear earlier, and that was a movie whenever in an interview, people said, what's your favorite film that you've done? I would say Haunting Fear because I'm in the whole movie. I work with Jan Michael Vincent and Karen Black. I'm alive at the end of the film. And um, and yet it never went on um, DVD. It was only ever on VHS. 
And the, it was tied up, the rights, for many years, like 30 years. So nobody ever got to see that movie. And finally, the rights reverted back to Fred Ray, and he put out a limited edition of a thousand copies, thinking, well, so much time has gone by, nobody's going to be interested. But I think they sold out immediately, and I had autographed uh, a thousand slipcovers and things like that. So finally, it was out, and hopefully it'll show up on some of the streaming channels, because I think it's a wonderful film. Robert Quarry is in it, and... Uh, you know, it's just, there's a lot of good stuff about it. I, I was just going to add too. Uh, one of my favorites that you're in, I mentioned it earlier was um, Grandmother's House. And I thought it was an interesting movie for you because I, I was used to seeing you in movies like Nightmare Sisters and Sorority Babes and the Slime Bubble Arama. But that movie is like a very serious, like thriller, you know, and, and you're, you're playing the role completely straight um, and you do it without much dialogue. But I really ended up connecting with your character. Um, could you just talk very briefly about that movie? Yeah, I think it was made in 1990 or 91, Nico Mastarakis of Omega Productions. It was directed by Peter Rader, who wrote the screenplay for Waterworld, the Kevin Costner movie. And we shot it out uh, east of Los Angeles near Riverside. Uh, it was a little town called Redlands, which the local people called Deadlands because there was nothing to do there. But they had these wonderful old houses that we used. And um, it, like you said, there's not a lot of dialogue. So it was really hard to get cast in that movie. And uh, an agent had set up an audition for me. And I was coming from a commercial that I was shooting for AT&T telephones. It was a birthday party and I had a ponytail and I looked really young. And this is supposed to be a woman who has two teenage children. So I pulled my hair out of the ponytail and I sprayed on some streaks and tips and rubbed my makeup off and put on this old ratty coat that I had in the trunk of my car. And uh, they really liked me, but they, they weren't sure that I was old enough to play the mother. So they called me back again after they saw a bunch more people. And I had even more streaks and tips in my hair to make it grayer. And they just started laughing at me because I, they said, you get grayer every time we see you. <laughs> so, um, you know, I did a lot of physical acting on the audition. At one point, they had me do a bunch of crazy stuff. And then I slapped my hands down on the coffee table that was in front of them. They were sitting on a couch and they all jumped and they went, okay, you've got the part because I really convinced them I could do the physicality. Were there any um, projects over the years that didn't materialize that you would have liked to have been in or any lost Brink Stevens projects, I guess? Well, every year um, I get so many offers of films that just never happen. And it's either because the, they don't have the money, they can't raise the financing. Um, in one case, I was supposed to do a movie a couple of years ago and the, like a month before we were supposed to start it, the filmmaker died from COVID. So there's many, many reasons why movies don't happen. But yeah, you know, and it's so funny, I, I go back and read old interviews and I'll say, yeah, and in the next few months, I'm going to be shooting this, this and this. And I'll laugh because none of them happened. Um, there's such a high attrition rate with movies falling through. So what, what's, what, do you, what do you attribute your, you know, success to? I mean, in terms of, there's not many actresses that can say they've done over 200 movies and done writing credits and uh, directing credits. How have you been able to sort of juggle it all and make so many films over the years? 
Well, basically, because there's nothing else I want to do. <laughs> you know, I want to stay in the business. And I survived. Uh, I, I supplemented my acting by doing conventions. I had a whole line of merchandise. I came out with comic books. There's six in the series, Brink of Destruction. Um, I did T-shirts. I did trading cards. And then I got into the writing. I probably sold six out of nine screenplays directing now. And um, I have a really good reputation where I'm not a diva and I don't have to audition anymore because people are so familiar with my work that they'll call me. And a lot of times I'm, I'm the name on a box. Like I may have a small part. I may only work one day, but my name will be the name, you know, on the box. And I've played a lot of authority roles lately. Like I was the president of the United States. I've been a police commissioner, a chief of police. I play professors quite a bit in lab coats. So I like it now that I'm getting these roles that are more age appropriate. So I have to ask before you go, uh, I was talking to Linnea a while back on this show and uh, I had asked her about, because I had heard one of you had met Ronald Reagan. Uh, in the oh, White yeah. House at one point. And she said, no, that wasn't me. That was probably Brink. Is that true? And yes. if so, how did that come about? <laughs> well, I did. Um, I have been in, involved in the restaurant business all my life. My father was. And he uh, was a cook in a restaurant. He managed a restaurant. He later owned a restaurant. And then um, when I got to Los Angeles, I made a friend with Nikki Blair, who was opening a restaurant on Sunset Boulevard. And I was uh, I helped him a lot with the decor, the menu and things like that. So um, I ended up uh, co-owning a restaurant in Santa Barbara, California, with two other friends of mine. And uh, we catered the opening of the Reagan Library in uh, Simi Valley. And because we catered it, they let us um, have a half hour with Ronald Reagan at his office in Century City. So my friends and I went down there and met him and got some photos with him. And uh, he knew I was an actress as well as a restaurateur. And he sa I said, um, would you like to be in one of my movies someday? And he said, no, I can't. People will think I got the role only because I used to be the president. <laughs> he was funny. So in closing, uh, anything else you want to promote? Um, maybe give a last plug to uh, Sorority Babes and the Slime Bubble Arama and anything else you're working on. Yeah, on November 22nd, that's the last date I heard, they're supposed to start streaming Sorority Babes 2, and then eventually it'll come out on DVD, but it's it looks like it's going to be so cute. I hope everybody will try to find it. Full Moon has a channel on Amazon, and I believe they're also on Tubi. So uh, yeah, everybody check it out. Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bullerama 2. Well, thank you, Brink Stevens, for coming on Parallax Views, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Yeah, thank you so much for asking me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views, the first in our series of episodes for the spooky season. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax... 
You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic glens, and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices are part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween.